I have not done any podcasting for some time now, so I think I should make at least some semi-enthusiastic effort to say something. And I, as I, I was listening to Sam Harris last night, he recycled a, looks like 2016 or 2017 podcast with Anil Seth, who is a neuroscientist. And I think he's director of a neuroscience research institute at uh, University of Sussex. And um, there's this obligatory 20 or 30 minutes that's spent whenever you talk about the brain, talking about the coming of killer robots. Uh, That was also the pattern when he interviewed Jeff Hawkins for his latest uh, thousand, a thousand, thousand brains. And so... It seems like that's part of Harris's understanding of the brain is that it is whatever the brain is doing when it's cognitive and thinking, it's eventually reproducible uh, in AI or on a computer. So I think maybe I'll talk a little bit about that. I actually, I'm just going to kind of decompose, maybe just for my own benefit, um, Harris's, what I take to be Harris's argument about the plausible existential threat of AI, of AI becoming generally intelligent and then super intelligent and then posing a threat because it outsmarts us. So when he, so this is basically just a podcast about what Harris says about AI. And I think it traces back to his TED Talk, which is really old now. It goes, I'm not sure what, I not I don't know the exact year, but I think it's multiple years old now, his TED Talk, which was much discussed. And he gave it sort of at the height of the hype about deep learning and AI. So I think it received a really wide audience. And of course, it's Sam Harris, so it's going to receive a really wide audience anyway, as he has a large following. And he should actually, he's an interesting conversationalist and a smart guy. So, um, so I think this is like, his argument seems to be when he, when he, when he gets pressed, I think he did this with Hawking, Hawking's, I keep confusing Stephen Hawking and Jeff Hawking's. I think what, what he does, um, is he are when when he's pressed on the when somebody doesn't buy the 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 line that we're on this inevitability path to super intelligence to to first general intelligence or AGI and then to super intelligence as Bostrom has argued Nick Bostrom has argued in his book which has been become kind of the de facto resource for super intelligence or or singularity enthusiasts and that was his I think 2014 book, Superintelligence, Paths, Strategies, Dangers, something like that. Um, so what Harris will do is he will, he will first state something like the uh, metaphysical or ontological thesis about the nature of the universe, which is scientific materialism, which is fine. Um, you know, that, that he'll say something like, look, we have every reason to believe that there's nothing going on in the brain, but it's a three-pound you know, piece of meat basically. And it's ultimately describable by biology and then by chemistry and then by physics and then by quantum physics and so on, like everything else. So it's just a material thing. And, um, starting from that point, which I don't have any, like, okay, I'm fine. I'm willing to just say, yeah, that, that's, that sounds good to me. Sure. Uh, but from there he goes, there's this jump that he takes to what I, what we used to talk about as, as the, the computational theory of mind or CTM, which is, is that all the, all the brain is doing is implementing computational functions or fun, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically an explication of functionalism in the philosophy of mind. 
And all the brain can possibly be doing when we describe it as being intelligent or thinking is doing something like computations because there's nothing else on offer. So from scientific materialism, we get computational theory of mind. And once we have the computational theory of mind, then there's no theoretical impasse, as it were, to the possibility of AI. We just have to figure out how the algorithms fit together and we will have implemented the mind on another substrate. And so, you know, part of functionalism, this is a little philosophy uh, history or, you know, this is, this is unpacking some philosophy here, but functionalism is this theory that basically replaced behaviorism in the 1920s and 30s. And functionalism is just basically was inspired by the success of digital computers effectively. And instead of saying that the, the brain is a black box and you have inputs from the environment and then you have outputs, which are behaviors you have in the black box, you have some program, basically that's functionalism, some abstract specification of states that is substrate independent. And by substrate independent, it is meant that if you have it running on, uh, you know, a brain material, biological material, or non-organic material like silicon, it doesn't really matter. The substrate doesn't matter because all the heavy lifting is done in the abstract software, not in the hardware. The hardware is basically irrelevant. The hardware is there just to implement whatever the logic, whatever the programming is in the, um, in the software. And so that's basically, a, that's a statement of functionalism and that's essentially what the computational theory of mind is. It says like those internal states, that network of, of abstract states that are substrate independent are just can be implemented as a computation. And so once you're there, the question is just how do you reverse engineer intelligent thinking by the human brain? Like, how do you do that? How do we find that computer program that we're all running to generate intelligence? He seems to buy that whole picture. He swallows that entire, that entire picture from something like a statement of materialism as an ontological or metaphysical statement about the nature of things all the way up through the, right, like the unquestioned adoption of functionalism through computational theory of mind, through... The, the problem of AI is no worse than just reverse engineering something that we know can be done. So it's just a matter of time. I think that's basically his argument. That's really what he says. However, he doesn't usually spell that out. He spells that out when he gets into trouble. When somebody says, well, how, you know, somebody will challenge something and say, like, just because scientific materialism is true. The, Hawking, for instance, Jeff Hawking, for instance, the guy who wrote A Thousand Brains said, well, yeah, scientific materialism is true, but what does that have to do with computers, <laughs> right? So, and he said, in fact, the, if you look at the brain, you'll see that all the stuff that we would be worried about, such as motivation and emotion and aggression and desire and intent and all that stuff, none of that stuff's really happening in the neocortex, which is this, if you took the neocortex and just laid it out, it would be like a large napkin if you just unfolded it all and it's a little bit thicker, it's something like 2.5 centimeters thick, and it's just this big sheet of fibers that wraps around the rest of the more primitive brain. And it, you see all the, the convolutions in the brain because it has to basically, you have to fit it in the skull, so it's got all these wrinkles and so on, but it's basically just this really thin sheet. And that's where all the intelligence happens. That's where all the cognitive aspects of the brain's behavior happen. And according to Hawking's, um, that is just a, that actually just is a, um, it's, a, it's the, it, those are just the neurons that model uh, the world, the world around us and, and enable us to think about it in the abstract. It, do, it has nothing to do with our motivations, what we're trying to accomplish and so on. And so you can think of that as, you can think of the neocortex as just a really, really powerful way of doing thinking without any animal stuff going on otherwise. 
And so in that sense, you can, and this is Hawking's thesis, by the way, which they, uh, Harris agrees with. In that sense, AI should be possible because we just got to figure out what's going on in that little 2.5 centimeter sheet of nerve fibers that enabled all this really amazing cognitive stuff like planning and common sense thinking and all that stuff is coming out of there. And, and, but where they depart is Harris feels like a, a computer that, imp, that effectively reverse engineers the neocortex could also be extremely dangerous. And Hawking's feels like it's just a nerd. It would just, the thing won't want to do anything. It's just a abstract specification running on a super, you know, a, a super computer cluster. And it, the only goals that it could possibly ever have or care about it wouldn't care about anything, actually. The only thing that it would do is just whatever we programmed it to do. So the question of AI never really leaves our own grasp, as it were. We are always in control of even a super intelligent machine would be like a glorified calculator that we would direct to our own purposes. So the AI existential risk question is really the question of, you know, it's, it's sort of like the atomic bomb. It's, it's, it's like, well, you know, it depends on who has it and what they want to do with it. And that, and, but Harris doesn't want to say that. This is the key thing to understanding Harris and uh, people like Nick Bostrom and all the other super intelligence warriors. They don't want to say that. They want to say, look, no, 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 no. What's going to happen is, is you can't disentangle all this emotion and motivation from the intelligence. And so if we get a legitimate bona fide artificial general intelligence and then we get through a series of that of self-improvement where the AGI looks at itself and improves its own code and gets smarter and smarter and smarter, which by the way is very dubious. Why can't we do that if it's possible for something to look at itself and make itself smarter, right? Like it, the, the, that entire process of exponential intelligence gains from a super intelligence explosion is very dubious. It somehow happens when a computer gets as smart as we are, but it's not something that we've ever been able to do in however many hundreds of thousands of years we've been thinking. So, uh, but that's another point. So, so, there's, so that's the thing, like Harris wants to say, no, when, once we get uh, a generally intelligent substrate independent program, that, will ha that, that intelligence also incorporates things like motivations, decisions, um, plans and all the sorts of stuff that could endanger humans. And we will, and the, he's very fond of saying that, that that computer could look at us as we look at fish or birds, just silly, dumb things that they, the computer needs to organize or get out of the way, or maybe even just, you know, get rid of exterminate. So, so that's the ba That's the backdrop. Now, the question there's a bunch, there's a bunch of questions here, but here's how, this is how I would, I would look at this one. And this is what Anil Seth said, the neuroscientist, the, the really distinguished neuroscientist said last night on his podcast, look, it's just entirely, and this, I think this is exactly where you push on this. It's just entirely unclear that even like, let's just by hypothesis, it's reasonable enough to say like, let's say Scientific materialism is absolutely true as a metaphysical or ontological statement about the nature of things, right? Let's just say that's true. It's just entirely unclear that the computational theory of mind is true. There are all sorts of other explanations for what might be going on when the human brain generates the mind or the thinking that, you know, what we think of as the, the cognitive part of the, of the brain. And, you know, it could be, it could be that I mean, there are all kinds of options here. I mean, Penrose says that it's not classically computable because of microtubules. So you have some kind of quantum stuff going on and notoriously quantum computing is stuck with one problem after one theoretical hurdle after another. It's unclear what the outcome of that project will be, but that's just one way of saying, look, CTM is false because it's actually quantum stuff that's going on. Um, the other thing, the, another thing that you could say about that is just that, um, you know, whatever thinking is, it's actually, it might be, it might be simulatable by a computer after the fact, but it's not reproducible in real time, right? So there's a lot of evidence for this too, by the way, that computations can simulate 
natural processes, but not actually reproduce them. And, you know, my, the example, it's a much given example, but I think it's actually very persuasive and people tend to pass over it too quickly. It actually carries a lot of, of weight. I think it's, you know, if you simulate a natural process, you know, you, you have a computer simulation of something like say a hurricane, you know, people will point out, but that's not a hurricane though. It's not the same thing, but like the, the hurricane has a set of causal effects that the simulation just doesn't have. So you have a hurricane and then after the, then you get the data, you abstract the data layer of the hurricane as it were. And then you can simulate the, the behavior of that hurricane on a, on a computer program and view it on a computer screen graphically. But it's just nothing to do with an actual hurricane. It's not the same thing. It's right, like the wind doesn't blow. It doesn't get wet in the office, in the lab. Like it's just, it's not the same thing. And I, I actually find that very persuasive. You might be able to, after a particular piece of cognitive behavior, after, after some thinking that has been done, somebody can come along and say like, let's figure out all the inputs and outputs to this. Let's figure out what the person was doing when they were working through what to get for lunch. And then we can simulate that process and reproduce the, all those causal steps and, and the leaps and the inferences and so on. But that doesn't mean that the computer can, in a novel situation, put a plan together to go get a sandwich and talk to the neighbor, right? It just means that after the fact, and anything can put it this way, anything, almost anything can be simulated computationally because that's a matter of just writing down the steps of what happened after the fact, right? And then you can just run it. And, and you know, that's a very simple way of saying it, but that's the essence of it. But that doesn't, but reproducing something in real time, like moving forward in time involves a, a completely different appreciation for cause and effect and contingency and dynamism in the environment, right? So you have all, you're going to have all this novelty if you're trying to reproduce something for the first time that poses a very genuine challenge or question to the computer programmer, whereas the simulation really doesn't pose that challenge. So there's a kind of epistemic distance between simulation and reproduction. And it could be that the CTM is only true of simulation. Anything that we do using some unknown uh, methods X, you know, whatever it is that we do using something, we'll just call it X, can be simulated computationally with Y, with some computer program Y. But Y cannot replace X. I suspect something like that is actually true, which would account for the seemingly endless difficulties that AI has faced trying to actually generate real-time intelligent behavior. So I don't find, just on the philosophical plane, I don't find Harris's move from scientific materialism to CTM as the kind of, you know, ultimate sort of foundation for why he's so confident of the superintelligence um, threat. I don't find that persuasive at all, actually. Um, it's like, I mean, just to put it in really simple terms, it's, it's, it's as if he's arguing that the hurricane simulation is in danger of blowing over the lab where they, where they programmed it. And it's like, well, no. And, and to some actually fairly, fairly good analogous degree, I find I, that that's probably what's going on with computer programming. So CTM is false in the sense that we need it, this is an entirely plausible exposition of the problem here. CTM is false in the sense that we need it. It's only true in the trivial sense of simulation, not reproduction, even if materialism is 100% true, right? So that would be one way of, of there, that'd be one response to that line of questioning. Now, um, and by the way, there are many mainstream, many neuroscientists who do see a distinction between understanding the brain as a physical thing, whatever that entails, and all the questions about AI coming alive, they actually separate those as two separate research questions. And maybe the one is true and the other is not true. So, but Harris doesn't see, doesn't see it that way. And he doesn't seem to, it, the way that he, when he, when he, when he lays out the, that, those premises of that argument, right? Like when he lays out the logic of what's going on in his head, he never seems to, to recognize or acknowledge that he's making assumptions and that he's making leaps from one 
thesis to the next, right? Like he just, to him, that all is just intuitively obvious and just all fits together. And I, that's not, that's entirely not true. It's just not true in terms of the, the, in just in terms of the opinion of experts in neuroscience and, you know, in the broader community. And it's just not true conceptually when you think about it. There's all kinds of wiggle room between those ideas. And that wiggle room could really mean a lot when it comes to the actual threat from AI. So that would be the first thing I say. And then the second thing is that he doesn't put a time and he's very fond, he's very fine of pointing out that he doesn't put a timeline on the arrival of AGI. It's just that if it's even 1% true that it will happen sometime while we still have people. So it might be 10 years, it might be 100 years, it might even be 1,000 years. Although I get the feeling that it wouldn't be much, there wouldn't be a lot of emotional force behind giving a TED Talk about something that was gonna happen in 1,000 years. I also think that's a kind of tension or contradiction in the way in his exposition. Like, well, look, I never put a timeline on it. It's just, you know, if it happens at all, it's gonna be an existential threat. And, Right, like so, if, you know, if you're talking about things that could happen in a thousand years, there's not much of an audience, and it's actually not. It's actually a waste of brain. We should be putting that that thinking to something that has more. That you know, right, like I mean, it's not even clear that that's a good use of your thinking to think about something that could happen in a thousand years. So it does seem like, practically speaking, he's committed to something more like in the next few, in the next you know decade or or 50 years, or at most 100 years. Otherwise, it's just not worth talking about. And by the way, what kind of insight can you have into something that, for all you know, will happen tomorrow or in a 1,000 years? Like, what sort of program can you develop around that kind of wiggling, right? So that's not a very strong way to put it. You need to say that, I would think that while he doesn't want to commit to a timeline, as in, in Kurzweil's sense and say, well, it's coming in 2029 and then fully in 2045 or whatever he says, Kurzweil. But 2029 is the first real AGI, according to Ray Kurzweil. Well, I understand not wanting to put a year on it like Kurzweil does, but it does seem like, it seems practically necessary if you're going to try to convince people to worry about the coming of the, of the, of AGI, you know, the, the robots rising up scenario. If you're going to try to convince people that we should put that on the list of existential risks, it does seem like you need to constrict your timeline to something that is in within the worry space, right? Like, you know, between 10 and a hundred years or something after that, it just becomes, what are we talking about? We don't know. We don't have any intuitions about things that are going to happen a thousand years from now. Like there's no way to really get any legitimate worry off the ground if you aren't willing to say anything about the likely the the arrival time, right? And in fact, in correspondence with Chalmers, he said that once also, and I don't find that that is the classic definition of hedging your bets in philosophy, right? So if somebody says, "Look, how can you possibly predict?" a conceptual, like, how can you make a prediction about something that we know so little about and we don't have that much evidence for? And this gets into the whole, you know, the, the whole, the, the opposite, the very good observation that we're just getting narrow, intel, narrow successes on well-defined engineering problems, but we're not making really any legitimate headway on the general intelligence problem. So we don't have a lot of evidence that AGI is showing up so far. We just have evidence that as Moore's law goes along, we have more and more narrow problems that we can revert, that we can engineer. We can take a group of engineers and, you know, if we, we can find, if we can find a well-defined problem in these narrow spaces, we can throw a lot of computation and deep learning at it and we can, might be able to get a solution. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that would be the, that would be the, the problem is that it's, it's very, if you want to hedge your bet so far that you say, I don't know when it's going to happen. It might happen in a million years. Um, it's very unlikely that people will take that seriously if they think it through. It sounds like very much like an armchair philosophy worry, like a parlor trick, like a, you know, a, <laughs> it doesn't sound like something that's real, frankly. 
Um, and it doesn't sound well motivated, frankly. Um, but on the other hand, if you're saying, look, we're on this inevitable path and I feel like it's going to happen in the next decade or a few decades, then you've got to provide some evidence for the belief that we're on this path. And that's where I think there's really a big problem. And I mentioned it, uh, already because we only really have evidence in the 70 or so odd year of, you know, 70 or so years of, of very concerted and concentrated work on AI since the field's inception, 1956 with Dartmouth, probably you'd say that's the inception. But we really only in this last, whatever, 70, 80 years, 90 years now, I guess. Um, Oh no, sorry, no, 70. What was I thinking? I was thinking of the 30s when the original, the, the original math of, for computers were in the 30s, but the actual program of AI uh, is started in, in, roughly in the, in the 50s, but probably put it at 1956. So, but there's no, we don't have any evidence of, 80, of looking back on the entire history of the field since its inception. We don't have any progress on AGI, like zero, actually. And we can, but we can point to progress on narrow problems. And particularly in a, in a space like games, where you have discrete board games and so on, you have this constrained environment with a set of rules. You know, we, have, we definitely can see this progress from checkers to chess to really difficult games for humans like Go. But nothing on offer for AGI. So if you're in a reasonable timeline... You have to provide some motivation for that thesis that we're on this inevitability path and you don't get any love, as it were, from the field, from anything, including the last decade with deep learning. We don't have anything that really says, hey, we're starting to break this open. Um, And so and that's not everything I've said so far is not as devastating as actually taking a deep dive into the nature and types of inference available for humans when we think and for computers when we program them. And, you know, once you get into the inference types and you realize that the field is basically just dividing up in its classic phase, deduction and its variance, and in in its latest phase, what we used to call empirical AI, uh, say in the last 20 years, uh, induction, Right. Machine learning is induction. I mean, that's just what it is. The actual definition of machine learning pretty much recapitulates the definition of of induction. Um, And this is not this is not even particularly controversial. I mean, Tom Mitchell, the researcher at Carnegie Mellon and is really widely read. I think it became the, the sort of standard textbook for machine learning in 1997, gave the definition of machine learning as as a, a computer that learns from experience, in, in other words, from prior observation. And that's the, that's the source of its, uh, you know, of its power is that it, it's able to take in more and more prior examples in the same sense that if you're looking at white swans, eventually after a thousand observations, 2000, you're going to make the, you're going to make the in, inductive inference that all swans are white. I mean, that's exactly re- recapitulates the, the logic of computational, uh, of machine learning. It's just computational induction. And so, but induction is demonstrably not capable of getting us to general intelligence. I mean, it's just like, it's just provably, demonstrably, you can't just use induction to get general intelligence. And the same goes with deduction and, and its variance. So, and, and by the way, you have, uh, you have three types of inference that we know of. And this is well developed in mathematics and logic and so on. I mean, this goes all the way back to Aristotle. We've known, and abduction has been kind of ignored, but famously by the also ignored American scientist and logician Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, he he mentioned hypothesis generation or abduction, what he called it. So you have this tripartite set of inferences, inference types. And they're exhaustive, meaning if you have deduction, induction, and abduction, you can generate intelligent behavior, right? I mean, that's what we're using, all those three in different combinations all the time when we have a conversation or do something like, you know, navigate a dynamic environment that be relevant to robotics. (coughs) So so you have this tripartite set, you have these three inference types, 
Two of them we can program, but do not suffice to get us to AGI, demonstrably, provably. And the third one, we have no clue how to program, but would. So, and by the way, they're not reducible to each other. That's another feature of their logical forms. It's not debatable that they're not reducible to each other. So you can't convert abduction into some deduction or, in fact, when you convert abduction into deduction, it becomes a logical, it becomes a deductive fallacy. So it's really, really clear that you can't convert it because it's a full, it's, it's really, it's non-deduction. Um, and same goes with induction and deduction. They're just different logical forms. They're different types of inference and they're not reducible to each other. So you have these distinct inference types and then you have a complete set. And... Um, if you start looking at that framework, you realize, yeah, we have these types. We have available for programming these types, but they're not the types we need for AGI. And the type we need for AGI, we don't have any clue how to do it. So it just follows from that. And my colleagues, by the way, like I've said this, I wrote this in the book, and I've said this many times to people who are practicing computer scientists, and nobody really argues with it. They say, well, yeah, that's right. And then it's kind of like, okay, so you're still, we're still in great pumpkin land. Like, okay, I just, you just said, yeah, that's right. Well, that just, it just follows that you're not on the path to AGI. <laughs> like, let alone this inevitable path, you're not on the path at all. Like to, like you, you're not going up the mountain to AGI. You're on, if you're on an induction or deduction or variance of those two or, or a hybrid combination of those two, it doesn't matter. You're, not, you're like going down the road, but not up the mountain. You're not on the path at all. So you can't use any evidence for getting up the mountain when you're on a path that doesn't lead up the mountain. Like that just, okay. And the only path that leads up the mountain, we don't have any, we don't know how to make any progress on. We don't even, we don't have the slightest clue how to do it. And so like that just screams that somebody should say, if we're not on a path to AGI, then we can't assign prior probabilities to the threat at all. You can't even say 1%. You have no way to assign prior probabilities when you're not even on the progressive path towards that outcome. <laughs> so it's like there's no, the, the threat is just, it's an absolute unknown. It's not, it's not, you can't say if it's an even 1%, there's no way to assign that prior prob probability it with anything like with any on the basis of any evidence, right? You can just you just have to say it like an Oberta Oberta dicta, like from on high, like I think it's this number, but that doesn't mean anything. And it's in contradiction with the facts. So that would be what I would say to Harris. And I'm not sure what he would say about that. Um <clears throat> I think what he would end up doing is, because he's not a computer scientist, and I think he would have to take, you know, at some point, I think he would have to accept my authority on that. And also that framework is relatively intuitive. It's not hard to see how it causes problems for the, the AGI thesis. Um, you know, I suspect he would just go back on, well, there must be some way of doing it. I mean, this is something that, say, Minsky would say, or Daniel Dennett would say, or Paul Churchill would say in another time, in another era. Like, well, there must be some way of doing it because the computational theory of mind is clearly true because scientific materialism is clearly true and we can't think of anything else it would be. So it has to be true at some level. In other words, it just fall back on the philosophy of it rather than the actual scientific investigation of it. And well, I mean, all I can say to that is, is good luck. I mean, if somebody, if somebody wants to believe in something of which there is no really good argument straightforwardly from the discipline itself, from AI and computer science itself, if somebody wants to impose upon that their philosophical opinions, then there's not much you can do to disabuse someone of their intuitions if they're not willing to, you know, so sort of debate things on their own merits. And, you know, I mean, all I can do is point out that CTM is not, is not obvious and it doesn't follow automatically from something like the truth of materialism. And most people, most people would agree with that. But, um, you know, that's the only thing I can think of. I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know how someone like Harris could say, well, yeah, but induction will get us there eventually. It just demonstrably doesn't. I mean, you just it, like trying to argue that way just starts to dig yourself into 
a hole where you eventually just, ugh, you know, everything is worse now. And I look, you know, you know, everything has been exposed now as not having a basis. So, so yeah, that's what I'd say. I guess that's all I really want to say. I'm going to get back to my other stuff, but there's my podcast. Great. It's 35 minutes. That's just about right. So I've been thinking about this lately because I've been watching James Bond movies and, you know, frankly, I've gone through periods where James Bond meant probably too much for me. In other words, I've really been into him at points and then you kind of snap out of it. It's like you're under the Bond spell. And then you kind of snap out of it and you say, hey, you know, like this is kind of childish. The plot is always some variation of like there's this evil guy and it's, by the way, the evil guy actually has a name. He's called Blofeld, right? So, you know, like there's this evil, it's, it's really kind of childish conspiratorial stuff. On the other hand, he's a great hero, right? Bond is. I mean, he's, he knows a lot of things. He speaks different languages. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, he has a license to kill, enough said, right? Like he's super smart guy. He's very good at driving cars. He can fly airplanes. He can do all kinds of things, but he's still human. He's not superhuman. He doesn't have a cape. So we kind of identify with him. It's like very common to, you know, and he gets, and he gets the girl. He's a, he's good looking, suave guy that sent out, risks his life for his country, all these really positive patriotic things. And then he has all this fun. He's kind of like everybody's dream. If you're 17-year-old boy, you know. But even grown men love James Bond. How can you not? So I've been watching him. I get bored. And I go back and I see movies that I've seen many times before. And the movies, look, you should go and watch. The first one was Dr. No with Sean Connery. And it's really a good movie. I mean, you have to... You have to develop a taste for watching movies made decades ago because the actual movie tech and even to some degree the movie technique by the director and the you know and the and the and the camera people everything right like it's not quite up to modern snuff there's no CGI and like even even apart from the pure CGI stuff the director didn't like in 1962 when Dr. No came out the director didn't know a lot of things about shooting movies that we know now. So movies have gotten better over the years. And so when you go and you see old movies in the early 60s like that or in the 70s, you do see uh, there's a certain simplicity and uh, lack of technical acumen in those kind of movies. And also you see kind of weird themes like silly soundtracks in the 70s and bell bottoms and and so on. That can be fun itself, but if you're looking just to be blown away by special effects, then you can't watch Dr. No. However, if you do watch Dr. No, you might be similarly entertained as with the movies that have Daniel Craig in them, starting with Casino Royale in 2006, Quantum of Solace in 2008, Skyfall 2012, I think it was 2015 when Spectre came out, or it could have been as late as 2017. Uh, Spectre, I think, actually was later, yeah. You know, all those are Daniel Craig movies, and they're all very good. And I still think, actually, the best one was the one, was Casino Royale, his first one. And I think second was probably Skyfall. And then I would put Spectre at third, for Daniel Craig Bond movies, and then I would say Quantum of Solace, although Olga Kurylenko is, I mean, you can't do much better than Olga Kurylenko, who she's a, she's a Ukraine, she's Ukrainian-born, French-trained, educated actress. She's Ukrainian. Um, and in 2012, she was pretty much the hottest thing on two feet. And she's, she's the Bond girl, the primary Bond girl in Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace also, by the way, has some sort of interesting scenes in, with a uh, 
a very attractive British woman who comes to retrieve, actually arrest Bond because he's done a bunch of stuff that he's not supposed to do. In fact, he inadvertently killed a bodyguard who was part of uh, the British Secret Service. But he didn't know, of course. But he has to come in for debriefing and he just doesn't come in. And so I want to talk about Bond as like, we love Bond, we celebrate Bond, we read the books, we watch the movies. He's a kind of archetype. And right, like nobody watches a Bond movie and like you would be really a schoolmarm personality to watch a Bond movie and walk out and say, yeah, but he doesn't listen to his boss. He doesn't drive the speed limit. He's so unsafe. He does everything unsafe. He's the kind of person that's ruining the country. It's like everybody would just like you would just they would COVID spit on you because like that's just so not getting the point of the Bond movie, right? Like it just that's not the point. The point is, and this is, this is why I think it's interesting, actually. I I'm not saying there's no tension here. I'm saying part of the appeal and draw of James Bond is precisely that. He never listens to his boss. He never listens to M. The, the movie is about, I, I mean, the, 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 the narrative thematic element that runs so strongly through every Bond movie or book it's, it's different in the books, and we can, I can talk about that, but it's a diversion right now. But every this, that thematic element is always that he's intransigently not listening to his boss. <laughs> like his boss is telling him to do things, and he knows better. And sometimes he doesn't know better. He just doesn't listen to his boss. He has the, he's playing the long game. He's going to get the bad guy. And along the way, he's going to like sleep with a, a supermodel and spend a bunch of the, you know, of the queen's money in England and you know, he's going to get the job done, but sometimes he doesn't get the job done, but the boss, they kind of wink, wink and nod, nod, but sometimes the boss just shuts him down, but Bond can't be shut down. That's the point. He wouldn't be Bond if the boss could tell him no, the boss can't. I mean, if, if Bond, if Bond did what the boss said, it wouldn't be, it, he wouldn't be Bond. So in quantum of solace, he's tracking this, uh, this terrorist who has a, a front company that's like an eco-friendly company and they're worried about, they're trying, they're, they're basically going to all these, these countries and trying to um, help with their water supply, basically, like all these drought-infested companies. But what they're really doing is actually stealing the water for some diabolical scheme. I can't even remember what the hell it is, what the heck it is, but it's a, they, it's a, it's a, it's a billionaire business guy, like an Elon Musk, only unlike Musk, it, I, I would assume unlike Musk, he like, he has this front company that's like this eco save the world thing. And he gives all these environmental talks and everybody loves him and they donate millions, but really he's got this diabolical scheme to rule the world by taking over all the water supply or something. It's something like that. And he's played by the French actor, and I can't think of his name, but he's also in the very, very watchable series on AMC called The Bureau. And it's five seasons, and it's just, I'm just finishing the fifth that starts in 2020, but I, don't, I can't think of his name. But anyway, he's the evil doer in, he's in, the, uh, in Quantum. And anyway, in Quantum... So Bond is tracking him, finds out what he's up to, and goes to Austria, Beringe, whatever, Austria, and there's this big shootout scene in this opera where they were using that as a place to all gather so that they could communicate their evil plans to each other while this, op this big opera is going on. And that becomes the perfect movie shoot scene to do. Um, this big shootout, and then in the course of the shootout, Bond, unbeknownst to Bond, like he doesn't know this, but one of the bad guys is actually undercover with the British Secret Service uh, in, you know, it's called Special Branch, and like one of the bad guys actually works for Special Branch in England, and basically Bond like doesn't shoot him, but allows him to fall and get, sh and, die and crash into a car, and then that didn't kill him, but then he got shot by the bad guys, but he basically did kind of initiate the whole, he let him basically fall off a building and die. 
And so, but he didn't know. But so M, played by Judy Dench, says, hey, you got to come in. Like, you just killed a member of Special Branch or you were, you were involved in the death of a member of Special Branch. Like, you can't keep pursuing your assignment. You got to come in. And then Bond goes, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that as soon as I finish my assignment. And she's like, did you not hear me? <laughs> you know, and Bond's like, yeah, like, I, I'm busy. Sorry, you know, like, that's what he always says. Like, he just doesn't listen to his boss. And we celebrate the man. So anyway, she goes, cancel all his credit cards and, you know, track him and do all this stuff. So he basically can't do anything. So he goes, yeah, whatever. He goes to the airport, can't get a flight, seduces the woman behind the counter to when the next phone call comes in to throw his boss and his, you know, organization off his trail. Tell, hey, tell him I'm flying to Cairo. And then he gets on a boat and he goes and he sees one of his badass French agents, ex-agents, the guy's in retirement, gets new credit cards and keeps doing the thing. Nobody says anything. Like, that's just what Bond does. He does the right thing in the end, but along the way, he does nothing even resembling the right thing by any rational assessment of, quote, the right thing, end quote. And so the question is, we've got this narrative, we've got the celebration of people like Bond who are just rule breakers. They're not only rule breakers, they're womanizers, killers, like just every possible thing that you, that we're trying to squelch in polite society, Bond has times a thousand, right? Like that's everything that we're trying to get rid of on paper is what he is times a thousand. And so the question is, are we serious about what we're trying to get rid of? And I think the answer might be something like, yeah, but Bond is just a fictional character and that's fine. But here's an interesting question. Why do we celebrate and cheer and enjoy and love that character and what he does so much? Is it because we secretly wish that we could do that? Is it because we secretly know that all these rules and stipulations and all this control that we're trying to put in place to make the world a happy place is actually making it a worse place? Because if you make the kind of bond people not only less likely but impossible because you've gotten your perfect, happy culture, society, I mean, haven't we lost the most interesting thing? And isn't some of the evidence for this view, however, you know, hesitatingly I put this out there because I'm not entirely sure how these dots connect, but isn't some of the evidence for this hypothesis that in fact that celebration of an applause of the ever so laudable James Bond is really genuine. We really do feel that. We don't have to manufacture it like we have to do for our enthusiasm about eating our vegetables in society. And we don't like, at the end of the day, the question, the, the, the political question of human liberty goes into a more philosophical and sort of existential question about human freedom, right? Like, and that's a question that sort of is addressed by the great writers like, you know, for me personally, Dostoevsky really, really explored this issue in a way that I found, I found it engaging. It was a trenchant investigation of the value of human freedom. Now, the problem with human freedom, if you're a politician, is that you've got people running around doing stuff like, oh, yeah, you're not supposed to not listen to your boss and accidentally kill a member of special branch with, with impunity and womanize. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on if you're a politician. Like, we don't want that because if you're not James Bond, nobody applauds. Like, if Joe the, the plumber... That actually was some character. Like if Bob the Barber, there we go. If Bob the Barber does it, nobody's applauding because nobody likes Bob. He's fat and he's got a red beard and he, you know, doesn't have the aplomb. 
he's not, you know, like he's not generating the story or the narrative that makes us applaud, you know, that, that, that tells us that James Bond is a hero that signals our hero vibe in our brain. He's just some idiot that should follow the rules. So if you're thinking politically, you've got to get, you've got to like, you can't have 50,000 Bob the Barbers running around trying to be James Bond or you can, but nobody, it's not very productive. You're not getting anything done. And he, you know, he didn't show up at the office and you know, he, whatever. I mean, like, it's all bad. It's all downside unless you're suave and cool and Bondian. And then all of a sudden it's massively hyperbolically upside. And so the question is, is, is that just a flaw or a bias in our thinking? And James Bond is another wart on the, you know, on the butt of society that we need to get rid of to have our little happy future? Or is there something really intrinsically necessary and important and valuable about Bond? And how does the, the exception, right? How does he, how is the Bond exception something that we can continue to uphold while we have all these other sober, you know, thoughts about society and maybe, maybe just maybe there's always a perpetual tendency among the political class to try to organize things for the greatest number and maybe always just maybe bond is never going to fit very well in a greatest number calculus and maybe just maybe we should ask ourselves harder questions about how he fits in. I mean, one po- possible answer is, is we just make the world a boring, crappy place so that most people are happy. Well, I certainly won't be involved in that project, but maybe somebody else will. And then Bond just stands out as an exception. He'll find a way to liven things up, as it were, because he's Bond. Um, so, you know, I, that's not a very satisfying answer because notice what I just said. It, I just said... Let's make the world a boring, crappy, safe place and everybody gets their 80 years less or some people more and then they die, but we've done our jobs. It's like, nah, that doesn't sound very good at all. If the world is denuded of the bond experience or the possibility of it, then you not only have done a crappy job, you have actually contributed greatly to ruining something that we greatly admire. So it's a very interesting thing. This is what we like. It's pretty obvious that you can't, you can't find a lot of people. Certainly you can find people who don't have a taste for those specific movies, but it's very difficult to find people who in one sense or another won't just have rip roaring fun watching some bond or bond equivalent break all the rules, you know, and so that just tells you human beings aren't intrinsically into whatever it, whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. We're into other stuff. And some of that is just be disciplined and grow out of that rule-breaking stuff. And other is, I think it's a window and an insight into, you know, the largeness of life. Let's leave it at that for now. Yeah, I mean, you remember like shock and awe, right? Like that was my favorite. So if you go back to like the, like the, the Gulf War, what, what was the war? It was not wasn't the Gulf War, the Iraqi War, right? So if you go back to the Iraqi War, there was this big, I mean, the whole thing was kind of ridiculous, right? Because like people were like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, when we get down there in the desert, uh, you know, our troops aren't really used to, they've been fighting down there for 4,000 years. And it's like, you know, there's a, like the whole thing was just a debacle. There was a guy like the, the Iraqi red, whatever brigade or whatever it was. And like, he had like a, like binoculars. They were like, you know, we're looking down field to try to spot the enemy. And we have like a fucking drone, 60,000 feet overhead, completely invisible to the naked eye. Probably can't even pick it up on standard radar. And it's like triangulating three satellites to then deploy a super fucking sonic missile that actually goes up into space 
And then at 15 times the speed of sound or whatever, it comes like rocketing down out of nowhere, like out of the, out of like the, the fucking heavens for all they were new and just like blew up their tank division. And there's a guy sitting there with like a, a fucking, you know, like binoculars, like, oh, fuck, you know, like where, where, where did that come from? It's like, yeah, that's not really a war. That's just like a, a training exercise when you didn't give the other side any equipment. You know, that's not really fair, you know? Like, I mean, look, you know, I like, whatever. But I'm just saying, you know, yeah, okay, it was a war. Yeah, it was a war. But, you know, so, so basically, like, the run-up to the war, we had this policy. I remember this really clearly, actually. I was... You know, I was watching it like we all were because it was just right on the heels of 9-11 and there was just a lot of this kind of stuff in the air, you know, as you might expect. And uh, so like, you know, so there's this, there was this one State Department official and I just remember her like it was yesterday. She was very beautiful, tall, just very well comported and professional right up to this point. She was this beautiful, black, professional-looking State Department official, and her job was to go out and tame the, like, just the legions of, of media that were just constantly peppering them with questions about what's going to happen? What are we going to do? What's it going to look like? Where should we put our cameras? Who's going to die first? You know, and it was like, so she has to go out there, and she keeps talking to them, and then finally they unveil the strategy, and the strategy is fucking shock and awe. That's the name, the official name that they gave to the strategy about going into Baghdad. It's called shock and awe. And, uh, and it's kind of like, you know, I mean, shock and awe is kind of a good concept, actually. Like, I think the idea was the way that it was sort of finally communicated to everyone, including all of us, you know, <laughs> sort of wide-eyed well-wishers back in the, in the States, all of us citizens, you know, it was like, look, we, we don't want to get into some protracted thing with these, these people. What we're going to do is we're just going to go in and blow the fuck up out of, we're just going to blow Baghdad up. And then anything, we're going to blow up the communications. We're going to blow up everything they care about. We're going to blow all the fucking buildings up, everything. And whatever's left over, there's just going to be a bunch of chaos and smoke and everybody's going to be stunned and nobody's going to know what to do. And we'll just drive in and insert the government while everybody's like, what happened? And so I think that was like the policy, but so she's answering questions very, very, very deliberately you know, very, very choosing her words very carefully. And then finally, she keeps getting the same question over and over and over again. Like, what, what do you mean by shock and awe? What do you mean by shock and awe? And she, I swear to God, she did a Miles Davis. I swear you can go pull the tape up. It's true. It's true. Really? She just finally, she looks at the guy from whatever, you know, news agency. And she just goes, if you have to ask, it ain't shock and awe. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's our official policy? Like, our official policy was like, this motherfucker is going to be like, it's like jazz music. It's going to be so beautiful. It's like, aren't you describing destroying one of the oldest cities in the world? Baghdad? Like, I, yeah, it was, it's taken over by a dictator. I get it. And he wasn't a very nice guy. But he didn't have a whole fuck of a lot to do with 9-11. Actually, he had zero. Let's just be honest. He had nothing, nothing to do with September 11th at all. Like zero. It's one of the most amazing things in history is that we went shock and awe on a country that had nothing. We might as well have just went to fucking South Africa. Just fuck it. We're going. Well, why? I don't know. You know, it was like, it was just the weirdest fucking moment in history. And everybody was just, we were all watching it like it was a video game. Like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like all the like military people in the U.S. were like, you can't take that, bitch. It's like, I, I just was like, I had no idea what to say. I just, I just, I was just like, this is just wrong. And then when they, when the thing with the WMD was so funny too, because it was like, well, yeah, it turns out that maybe uh, Osama bin Laden's actually never been in Iraq, like ever. It's like, okay, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Ostensibly, that's a problem for your fucking strategy. And then, but the other thing was, is they go, okay, yeah, but that doesn't even really fucking matter. It's not really about Al-Qaeda at the other, at the end of the day. It's not about Al-Qaeda. You know what it's about? You know what it's about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about weapons of mass destruction. You mean like, 
How many countries have weapons of mass destruction? Do you mean like what fucking Britain has, what Russia has, what China has, what Pakistan has, what India has, what France has, what Germany has? What are you talking about? Well, they got weapons of mass destruction and we don't like it. Okay, well, I have an idea. Why don't we just go suck it all? Yeah, and we did too. Boy, did we ever. And, you know, the whole thing was a debacle. You have to, you have to understand, I mean, when, when this stuff washes out, you have to believe that, I mean, somewhere in the world, Dick Cheney has to be sitting there going, technically, I did get that correct. However, I mean, he has to be somewhere in the world, the guys that orchestrated that and pushed it forward, I, what I can't believe, like if I, I'd like to believe this is self-serving to say this. I have no idea. I might just be covering my own ass. For all I know, they would be war criminals and they go to jail, so they can't say anything. But if I fucked something up that bad, <laughs> and it's possible that I would. I mean, I don't know, but like, if I, but if I ever found myself in that situation, it was like, yeah, sir, you uh, <clears throat> committed the entire U.S. military to go down and, and destroy a country that had nothing to do with 9-11 and didn't have any weapons of mass destruction at all. You just destroyed the whole country and there's still like 60,000 troops down there. I would probably just go, fuck, I gotta say sorry. I need to go, like, I have to like get this off my chest. Like I have to, fuck, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, you know, like, but you never heard that, did you? It just kind of fucking weaselly went somewhere. I don't know where, but... It just never, there was never a moment like, like, I, I mean, maybe like, I don't know, maybe like Cheney went like to, like he did, like maybe he just went and like fucking with a small group of like ministers and like a confessional and just said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have blown up that country, but I doubt it. I mean, it was a very, very strange situation, but yeah, that's just one of those, that's one of those weird things, but you know, I'll just end with this. Shock and awe is actually, irrespective of the political debacle that was the uh, Iraq war, the, the, the actual strategy itself, if you, kind of, if you could kind of remove it from the, you know, stupefyingly ridiculous, you know, decision to go in and bomb the wrong fucking country and then never say you're sorry, um... The actual strategy of shock and awe actually makes a lot of sense. It's what the, the great white actually, I was thinking about this actually, that you have a shock and awe in nature, basically. The great white actually typifies, or really actually perfectly, perfectly exemplifies the shock and awe. Because what it does is like, excuse me, what it does is it comes up. If you ever seen these like fucking nature videos, like there's a, walrus or a seal or something like that. And they're actually big. They're actually, they're big. I mean, I don't really know what they can do. It seems like they don't have, they just have like flippers and maybe they have a tusk or something, but it, it's not, it's unclear how they get hurt, but they come up underneath the thing and they just, bam, they just hit it like really hard. And it's very clear that the strategy is, if you ever see this, it just gets born aloft. And it's just like, what the fuck? There's just like this giant, like, you know, Ma that just comes up, it like accelerates up from the deep and, you know, like Peter Benchley style and it hits the thing like the seal or the walrus or whatever. It's always like a giant blubbery thing with whiskers that it's eating. And uh, it goes up, it like literally hits it so hard that it sometimes can't even keep it in its mouth because the impact actually blows it out of its own fucking maw. And it's just like, it's like flying through the fucking flipper and through the air and then it hits the water, but it's so shock and odd. I'm serious. It's so shock and odd that it can't, it's like, what the, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it can't really do anything. And so the, the shark just swims over and just eats it at leisure, at its leisure. But yeah, I mean, you think, and I think like, yeah, I mean, it's not clear what you can do to a great white shark. It looks like a fucking, like a, it looks like a metal, a flexible metal tube covered in gray skin with a giant like 50X magnified bear trap on one side and just a giant tail on the other. It's not clear what you can do to that thing. I don't know why, because the idea would be that it does shock and awe because 
it doesn't want to get hurt in the ensuing struggle to consume the creature, right? That would be the point. Like it just shocks it so that it doesn't like the thing just sort of like it becomes, you know, incapable of mounting any kind of spirited defense against it, right? And so, but then you look at the seal and you go, what kind of fucking spiritual, spirited defense is that thing going to mount against a giant mouth? Like a 30 foot mouth. Like, I don't see what the, like the, what are you going to do? Hit it in the tooth? Like, ow, shit. You know, like, what are you going to, like, it's not clear what you can do. So, I mean, maybe the eyes, but the eyes are like these little tiny things and they just get covered over with this like skin of, you know, like this little film, you know, like very thin sort of translucent skin like you know i don't think that's true actually i think they just always stay like a little they're like little like on the snowman they're like the eye on the fucking frosty the snowman it's just like a little black thing it's probably not even soft you could probably poke it in the eye and it would be like obsidian stone or something the thing is not clear how you could hurt it at all but i was thinking about this as it evolved because these creatures are as old as just they're Millions of years old, you know, the great white shark's been around for who knows how long. Like, I don't know, the Pleistocene or something, like way, way back there, right? And so back then, like the seal, everything was badass back in like the Pleistocene or the Jurassic or I don't really know all the things. But like back in the prehistoric stuff, right, the stuff swimming around in the ocean was all just gnarled out. It was like the seal would be three times as big and be covered by six foot barbed hairs and it would have like a tongue that had like a, a, a metal fucking spiked ball at the end of it that it could fling at shit. You know, it was like the seal back like 60 million years ago would be the baddest brutish looking seal you've ever seen. Probably wasn't a seal back then because it was before mammals, but whatever it was eating back in the day, that thing might've really been like, it might've not been able to just eat. Now all it has to do is like eat surfers and just, you know, fleshy blobs of cute stuff. Like back in the day, it might've actually really been threatened by the, 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 the potential power and viciousness of the, of the prey that it attacked. So it used every asset available to it in the water. One being that, you know, it's very fast swimmers. I mean, sharks, shark, the great white can swim pretty fast for a short period of time. I have no idea if that's true, but I've seen visually on like National Geographic shit, them swim really fast for a short period of time. It seems like they don't really do that otherwise too. Like if they're up in the water, they're just floating around like a fucking submarine, like it just, they don't do anything. They just kind of glide around. But if they're coming up underneath, they just have this burst. They're just like a, a fucking giant cheetah fish, you know? And so, you know, they, that's one of the assets they have in their arsenal. That's one of the weapons they have in their arsenal is the shock and awe strategy. So, you know, it's like, what is this thing going to do? What is this thing going to do? The seals are coming into Farallon Islands off, you know, 90 miles off the coast of San Francisco. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then we just have the same State Department official standing on fucking the pier, the Navy Pier or whatever it's called, the Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. And all the cameras are gathered around and they're like, what's going to happen out at the Farallines when the, the season is coming in and so on? And the sharks, you know, what do you think is going to happen? And finally, she's just going to get fed up sitting out there in California. I'm telling you. And she's just going to say, if you've got to ask, it ain't shuck it all. And that's exactly how that's going to go down. Same principle. <sighs> Take it easy.